Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 16th of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Um, well, Joe Biden has arrived in uh, Switzerland. Uh, just 15 or 20 minutes ago, he arrived uh, for the meeting with Vladimir Putin. Uh, this is the end of a whistle-stop tour at the G7 and then the NATO summit. It's uh, not surprising, therefore, that it took him an absolute age to get out of the car because he must be knackered. Um, but uh, what are they going to be talking about? Well, who knows? Uh, it's uh, the first meeting uh, between the two. Uh, and, uh, of course, Biden claiming that he's going to undo a lot of the damage done by Trump. Uh, he's looking for a stable, predictable relationship with uh, Russia. Um, and But he is pretty upset because he's claiming that Putin has been interfering in American elections. They're still banging that sad old drum uh, that he's provoked wars uh, with people next door to him uh, and that he's uh, seeking to crush dissent. And of course, that's with reference to Mr. Navalny and so on. Uh, it took uh, Biden so long to get out of the car, by the way, they had to cut away uh, to something else and then cut back to him. But there he is. Uh, on Putin's part, then, he's obviously upset that uh, the U.S. is supporting Ukraine's government. He's upset that uh, uh, the U.S. is backing the likes of Navalny and also the Belarusian situation um, and also NATO uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, so this was uh, what Putin had to say to the U.S. press. Uh, however, uh, we have a saying in Russia, uh, don't be mad at the mirror if you're ugly. Uh, and Alex, I think that... Uh, sums the Russian position up pretty well. Uh, I'd be interested to see what your thoughts are on who is more correct in their, taking their position, uh, because the Russians really do have a point with respect to, to uh, NATO coming up against their borders. Um, and uh, well, NATO's position is, well, Russia's being aggressive. It's, it's a bit pathetic. It is, Mike, and this does go all the way back to the era when James Baker was U.S. Secretary of State uh, in the, uh, well, the, the George Bush Senior Administration, and Shevardnadze uh, was the uh, Foreign Minister under Gorbachev. And there were gentlemen's agreements at that time, which, you know, people shouldn't laugh that off. Gentlemen's agreements is how great powers uh, form real, you know, generational accords, that NATO would never go east of the, the Oder-Neisse line, the, the, uh, the former border within Germany, let alone subsume Eastern Germany, Poland, and now the Baltic states, and be within a couple of hours drive of St. Petersburg and Moscow. Uh, so this is really a 30-year contention. Uh, Shevardnadze and Gorbachev afterwards, although they were globalists themselves, admitted that they had been outsmarted by a senior and more devious class of globalists. Uh, and I know it's usually uh, shall we say, the the hard left or the old left that makes this point, but there's nothing preventing uh, just any kind of constitutionalist uh, from making that point. And of course, the, the, the big issue with Biden meeting Putin is uh, we know how battled uh, Biden's brains are, and he's going up against a counterpart in Putin who is noted for memorizing apt idioms, uh, one of Russian's many idioms about mirrors and, and hypocrisy you quoted there, but Putin also memorized statistics, which he'll be able to reel off dates, facts and figures. I think he'll leave Biden in the dust. Um, this is uh, this is absolutely correct, and I just wonder how Biden is going to react to that, how the whole situation is going to be handled. But of course, this meeting is uh, only just begun, so we can't give any kind of readout of it just yet, but we will uh, report on Friday, no doubt. I was just going to ask Alex, is it fair to say that Biden is like Brezhnev's last days? 
this is a point that Putin has been hinting at with his noted comment a couple of weeks ago, picked up by TASS news agency, that the United States is uh, uh, wandering the Soviet Union's path with a, a, a swing in its gate. Uh, with a confident gait. So he's, he's, he sees uh, the United States heading for its dissolution moment. Um, and of course, the big thing about Brezhnev's final days is that he was kept in aspic the last few years by that very nefarious figure, Andropov, who was head of the KGB. And basically, if you read the works of Christopher Story, the pen name of Edward Hall, Andropov and the KGB were holding Brezhnev hostage and not permitting him either to die or to speak of his own accord for several years. So that possibly is a key to what's happening now with the dead hate, dead hand of the US spook state manipulating Biden. Yeah, yeah I think that's a fair comment. OK, let's come back to the UK then. Um, and uh, and this um, this is Edgy Productions and they produce scripts for plays and so on. Superb musical songs and assemblies for primary schools is how they uh, describe themselves. Uh, what we've been told of several schools around the country uh, running a school play that's on screen. It's called Wow, What a Year. Um, and uh, this is going to be an end of term for this this summer term uh, play based on this script from Edgy Productions. It's for six for for year six primary school pupils, uh, and for anybody that's outside the UK, that means uh, eleven year olds who are just about to go from some into into some form of secondary education in September. And of course, it's at secondary level education which is going to be trying to impose vaccination in schools. Um, so what does it say there? It says, where to start? Homeschooling, empty supermarket shelves, social, social distancing, bubbles, tears, face masks, not being able to hug your grandparents. These have been extraordinary and challenging times. But through it all, heroes have emerged. And with a strength of spirit, hope in our hearts and a sense of humor, we're coming out the other side. So what better way to commemorate our place in history than with a blooming good sing song? That's what they say. 10% uh, of the profits from this are going to go to the Captain Tom Foundation. So that's excellent. So let's have a look at what the, uh, what the script is all about. Well, this is the beginning. Uh, the teacher and her his her class uh, reflect on the monumental events that have shaped our lives in recent times. They discuss the pandemic and how various aspects of lockdown have put us all in some quite challenging situations. As we look at snapshots of these situations, we see that amongst the sadness and frustration, uh, there have been moments of hope, heroism, and even humor. And then there's a song, Wow, uh, What a Year. Uh, it then goes on to say, uh, the next stage is we celebrate these frontline workers whose amazing efforts prevented, provided a lifeline during lockdown. Uh, in a cinematic scene, we imagine them as a team of Marvel superheroes assembled to battle the evil foe. Uh, with Kerpaz aplenty, uh, they emerge triumphant, but acknowledge the sacrifices and efforts made by all of us in this epic struggle. And that ends with a, a song called H-E-R-O. Uh, then they consider all the rules and restrictions that they were subject to during lockdown, how confusing they could be and how they seemed to ch change from one announcement to the next. We join three experts as they prepare to give another COVID briefing to the nation in which they will outline their latest ideas to flatten the curve, uh, realizing that Perhaps previous instructions had been less than straightforward. They decide to inject some uh, pizzazz uh, in today's briefing, hoping the message will really uh, hit home. And the song in this case is Put That Mask On. Um, and uh, the next stage then, however, there is a light at the end of the tunnel uh, with the development and rollout of a vaccine. Uh, this has been the cause for celebration. And we take a fly on the wall look at how such celebrations may have taken place amongst the scientists responsible. And the song is A Shot in the Arm. And then finally, 
Uh, so here we are, having lived through our own place in history, uh, we can now look to the future with hope. Uh, things may take a while to get back to normal, but there will soon be possibilities and opportunities to make the most of and enjoy a chance at last to live our lives and be anything and everything we want to be. And the song is called Running Free. Um, so this is what is being pushed uh, to uh, year six students, 11 year olds. Um, they will be making this play in a number of schools that we know of. And we're very keen to find out from people whether this is happening in their schools and your schools as well. Uh, because we'd like to know what, how uh, f widely spread this is around the country. Is this just a couple of schools that happen to pick this up? Uh, or is there some central uh, effort to, to push this out uh, to primary schools right across the country? I'd be very keen to hear. Yeah, it reminds me, it immediately mind, it reminded me, Mike, of a company called Leading Light that was pushing out plays to do with suicide at the time when suicides were the were the big issue in South Wales and we followed that through. Uh, I would guess there's going to be some centralised control and I did notice the one eye for the uh, for the boy in the cartoon picture that accompanied it if people understand that significance. Uh, but of course just a couple of days ago the Telegraph here reporting children may need to get Covid jabs in order to avoid disruption to education in September. This is uh, Chris Whitty making this statement and uh, uh, a play like that certainly primes uh, primary school pupils that are heading off to secondary school uh, to be uh, complicit in that. Uh, but Alex, uh, what's going on in from France? Les Echo here. Les Echo is the French equivalent of the Financial Times. It is the uh, journal that all the movers and shakers in business uh, subscribe to. And here in the personage of its editor-in-chief, no less, Etienne Lefebvre, uh, they are preaching that it's time to se vacciner pour les autres, to get jabbed for other people. Uh, this, of course, being the first time in the history of vaccination that such an idea has been pressed, but now it's mainstream. And uh, if you tap again, you will see some detail of the argument that Mr. Lefebvre is making. He concludes his op-ed by saying that convincing parents in dialogue with the treating doctor that the jab is not dangerous for their child is a tailor-made measure to cover the last mile, the hardest to run. So there is an acknowledgement by uh, the money in France at least, uh, that it is hardest to persuade parents to get their children jabbed. And this is even before we get on to the questions, of course, of uh, efficacy and safety being open-ended, no long-term safety studies possibly existing yet. And with an eye to that previous uh, piece that we had there about the, uh, the children's musical in Britain, uh, they sing, put that mask on, is there a single study in the world, even to this day, two years into COVID, uh, that uh, pretends or purports to prove that, that masks have efficacy in stopping the relevant transmission? So I don't know, but uh, Lefebvre is saying uh, we need to go completely over to a propaganda system of telling parents your children need the jab for les autres. Yes, OK, thank you for that. Now, uh, we'll move on to The Guardian here because it was The Guardian that was the first to report this. Uh, COVID jabs to become mandatory for care home staff in England. Uh, so they're saying COVID vaccinations are to become mandatory for care home staff in England under plans to be announced by ministers as they consider extending the move to all NHS staff. The controversial measure sets up a likely battle with staff in both services and could lead to the government being sued under European human rights law or equalities legislation for breaching the freedom uh, of people to, who work in caring roles to decide what they put into their bodies. The Guardian understands that ministers 
will confirm they are pushing ahead with compulsory vaccination for most of the 1.5 million people working in social care in England, despite employer and staff organisations in the sector warning that it could backfire if workers quit rather than get immunised. Under the plans, those working with adults will have 16 weeks to get vaccinated or face losing their jobs. Now, we've had quite a lot of uh, uh, communication uh, on this with from quite a number of people very concerned that they're going to be put in this position. Uh, and fearful for their jobs and so on. Uh, now, of course, this is typical uh, behavioural uh, insight and behavioural analytics going on here because they push these stories out into the mainstream press and then they watch the reaction on social media and, and other places. Uh, so what this uh, article is about, uh, because the decision hasn't been announced yet, I'm quite certain they intend to make this decision, then they intend to announce it. Uh, but what's really going on here is that the pre-announcement is to assess the, uh, the the willingness in the population and what kind of pushback they're going to get. So there is still time for people who are unhappy about that uh, situation to make their feelings understood. Uh, the first place, the first protocol would be your own MP, of course. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty draconian uh, direction to be heading in. Yeah, I'll just add that we do know that there are law firms now uh, looking into what's happening here, and they are warning uh, that some organisations, firms employing people are simply making up the law with regard to forcing their employees uh, to be tested or have vaccinations. And uh, the, um, a lawyer I was able to speak to last week said, it's very clear that the law still does not allow for this to happen. So um, I think it's encouraging if we've now got uh, people in the legal profession at least starting to ask the right questions. Um, now, The Telegraph has this headline today, uh, hospitals overwhelmed as Delta variant fuels increase in COVID around the world. And they're not talking about British hospitals here, this is internationally. But the narrative from the headline is just to plant that little seed that hospitals are being overwhelmed uh, and that could very well happen here as well. But the question, we've been talking about the situation with hospitals being overwhelmed uh, as we speak uh, around the UK and certainly around England and Wales uh, and asking why that's happening. And we've seen a couple of headlines over that. Uh, this is from a couple of weeks ago. Fresh questions over 21st of June reopening as NHS boss warns hospitals going at full pelt with non-COVID backlog. Uh, well, that could mean anything. Non-COVID backlog might be uh, uh, operations that haven't been carried out because of the uh, reorientation of the NHS to COVID and ignoring everybody else, or it could be vaccine adverse reactions because they're non-COVID as well. Uh, but if we look at uh, the uh, dashboard from the government uh, website uh, for patients admitted to hospital uh, who have had a positive PCR test, uh, we see that the uh, levels there are still uh, absolutely at the at the. <laughs> completely low level. So uh, the question is still, why are the hospitals full? Well, we've been sent this and thank you very much to the person who sent it through. Uh, this is an email that's being uh, sent to every uh, clinical employee, uh, as it was described in the NHS. Uh, it's titled Management of COVID-19 Vaccination Clinical Incidents, a Briefing for Trust clinician, Clinicians. Uh, in light of several recent uh, potential vaccine-related incidents, I'm writing to confirm the actions you should take to ensure patients receive best care uh, and to enable incidents to be monitored and escalated properly. Please see uh, the algorithms for advice. 
I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, but it goes on to talk about uh, significant uh, adverse reactions and reactions to COVID-19 vaccines, which must be reported uh, to Datix. Um, so that's not yellow card. And then later at the end of the uh, article, it says uh, that clinicians are required to refer the on-call uh, hematologist and to escalate to CARS, which is clinical advice and response service. And that's not yellow card either. So this is, the, this is an email that's literally just in the last couple of days been sent around every clinician in the NHS. And there's no mention of when they come against an adverse reaction that should be reported to the yellow card system. I thought that was interesting. Um, but let's have a look and see what Datix is. First of all, this is uh, incident reporting on Datix. This is, I think, from Shropshire Hospital Trust. Uh, and it's, uh, it tells them what they should report, why they should report an incident, how they should report it. And it's done through an intranet, uh, intranet uh, IP address. Um, and, uh, and so that's one method of reporting. Uh, but if we look at uh, this document here, which is the COVID-19 vaccination program standard operating procedure, I'm pretty sure we've had this on the program before. But what's interesting is that it is no longer available on the NHS website. This had to be obtained through the uh, Wayback Machine. Um, and this is uh, some of the text of it. They mention the MHR a yellow card system. They then talk about PHE reporting form uh, and NRLS e-form reporting and local risk management system, which is Datix, but also Ulysses. Uh, also, uh, NRLS should not be solely relied on for reporting. These must also be escalated to RVOC slash CARS, uh, which we've just mentioned. And Brian, what struck me about this is it's hardly surprising that the yellow card system is being completely forgotten by clinicians. It's not mentioned in emails that are telling people how to report adverse reactions, but it's completely forgotten by clinicians because they already have about you know, several different mechanisms for reporting adverse reactions, and how, they must be spending all their time just filling in forms. Well, one would have thought so, but I think the reality is they're not even doing that, Mike. But we've got a lot of questions to ask because... Uh, clearly, there's data here which the NHS and these partnering organisations are hoovering up or attempting to hoover up. Where is that data going and what is it being used for? Because it clearly isn't being used for patient safety because we know that MHRA is not investigating causality between problems and vaccine, uh, what, what are listed as vaccine adverse effects. So, huge amount of data being sucked up. Uh, what's it being used for? A lot more work to be done on that. And we're looking at some of those areas. Yes. So more to report in the coming days. Indeed. Now, on Monday's programme, we were uh, we showed a little bit of video uh, um, of Eric Clapton, uh, so another uh, past well, rock star that has been uh, speaking out as Van Morrison. And well, Van Morrison today has absolutely been hammered uh, in the independent uh, Van Morrison is a toxic menace. Glastonbury shouldn't be hosting him. Uh, and uh, uh, so one of the comments that's made in this article, it says some of this nonsense is served via social media. This is the stuff that Van Morrison's been talking about. But most has been in the form of uh, song lyrics. After a career where the drama of Irish politics seldom featured in his work, Van Morrison now describes his deeply paranoid offerings as protest songs. Uh, he even teamed up with fellow COVID skeptic Eric Clapton under the name Kill Me the Rebels uh, to release dull songs that compare lockdown to historic slavery. Uh, for good measure, Van also likes to hint strongly at another ancient conspiracy 
uh, theory that one song in his latest album called They Own the Media, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I'm not saying that Van Morrison is peddling anti-Semitism, but he is. But he also sang in 2005 about how being sold out for a few shekels was the oldest story ever told. Make your own mind up, as conspiracy theorists are often wont to say. So this journalist, if we can call him a journalist, uh, Oliver Keynes, uh, claiming that he's not saying that Van Morrison is anti-Semitic, when in fact that's exactly what he's doing, uh, but it is a massive hit piece on Van Morrison uh, because, of course, he's been releasing songs which have been critical of lockdown and uh, uh, the COVID policy and so on. But the question is, who is the toxic menace here? Is it Van Morrison or is it Oliver Keynes? Well, I'm just going to let you know. Uh, this is the uh, journalist here. Ollie Keynes is a disco DJ from London and a resident with queer party collective, Little Gay Brother. Uh, so you have a look at his CV and decide for yourselves, uh, just to throw that quote straight back at him, about which uh, of the two is the toxic menace. But the bottom line here, Alex, is uh, that once again, the answer for any kind of criticism or any kind of uh, commentary on, on the, the policies that are in place is to cancel uh, people rather than to actually cr uh, comment on their criticism or engage in a healthy discussion. You know, the uh, younger viewers and foreign viewers among us might not be fully aware that Van Morrison, well, obviously many people will know that he's a pop music icon from Belfast, but uh, they might not be aware that certainly in the 90s, uh, broadsheet journalism, the serious chat shows on TV uh, would always give a nod and a wink to what cultural icons like Van Morrison were saying. And whether uh, they were left, right or centre of the political spectrum, serious political commentators and journalists would uh, talk about the rebel tradition. And yet we go forward to uh, the book which we've publicised recently, Laura Dodsworth's new book, State of Fear, the runaway bestseller that covers a lot of UK columns ground about the use of SPIB fear tactics on the population. And when she's speaking to an anonymous uh, scientist in Whitehall, uh, the scientist says uh, these SPIB characters do not like rebels. They like conformity. They wouldn't have liked Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks didn't stand up and get off the bus. And I know this is a, you know, a peaked comment by an annoyed scientist who sees himself passed over by the new wave of behaviorists. Uh, but it does show something very deep tectonically shifting in the British commentariat, uh, that, uh, that suddenly Van Morrison is yesterday's man. And, and the subtext is he's from an irritating past generation that didn't know when to shut up and pull their forelocks at government. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to this then. This is uh, the School of Health and Related Research at uh, the University of Sheffield. Uh, and they've been taking a look at um, the use of do not resuscitate orders uh, during the first phase of the uh, lockdown and so on. Uh, and so let's just have a look at uh, what they said. We found that 31% of adults admitted to hospital with suspected COVID-19 during the first phase, phase of the pandemic had a do not resuscitate decision recorded on or before uh, their day of attendance after excluding those who could not be classified. Uh, they went on to say most patients, 59.4% with an early do not resuscitate decision survived to 30 days uh, and 11.6% received some form of organ support. These findings show that potentially life-saving treatments were provided to a significant proportion of people potentially addressing concerns that do not resuscitate des decisions may be conflated with quotes, do not provide active treatment. So that seems like a positive uh, statement. 
But then it goes on to say this, uh, the use of invasive intervention, particularly mechanical ventilation in people with a do not resuscitate decision was an unexpected finding. So they um, are quite positive about the fact that uh, people with DNRs uh, placed upon them uh, were receiving some form of medical intervention, uh, but they were surprised to find that uh, mechanical ventilation and invasive intervention of this kind was used when there was a DNR in place. Now, I don't know um, what to think about that, but uh, certainly many people, uh, many medically trained people that we've spoken to over the past uh, 14 months have said that you know the use of uh, mechanical ventilation uh, and the drugs that are involved in enabling that use, because obviously it involves a uh, an induced coma, um, is very, very you know it's very challenging. Uh, to, and if somebody has been given a do not resuscitate order, then they must have been in a fairly bad place in the first place. So my question is, what would the effect of putting somebody like that on mechanical ventilation have been? Yeah. Could it shorten their life, possibly? That, that's the question. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, okay, Alex, back to you. The Dutch Health Ministry here, uh, with the acronym on screen being VWS, is in a bit of bother. Uh, even the Dutch equivalent of the BBC, NOS, is reporting uh, that the Dutch Audit Court, or Audit Chamber, uh, but usually called Audit Court in Dutch, uh, has found that it spent five billion euros, 5,000 million euros unlawfully on COVID material. And that's the headline that's on screen. And we can zoom in a bit on the image there and find that the uh, key paragraph is that five, if you go back to that, yeah, is okay. that 5.1 uh, billion euros uh, of taxpayers' money has been spent on COVID material such as masks, uh, respirators or ventilators, depending on which part of the English-speaking world you're from, and tests. So at least one of these points is uh, overlapping with what you have just reported. 40% uh, of that material cannot be properly accounted for. The auditors, which is a separate branch of the Dutch government, as often on the continent, uh, have gone through and found that there's no invoices and no uh, delivery receipts at the hospitals or stores storage centres for much of this material. Now, the next slide gives a little more detail. That was a month ago. And now this has become a, a hot potato this month, June, in Dutch politics, because NOS in a follow-up report has, uh, even though it's a cheerleader for government in most of these matters, has looked at the 25 costliest big-ticket items that the Ministry of Health and Welfare has spent on in the COVID crisis. And you can see on screen the costings uh, A to E uh, of the top five uh, e and C together are the ones people would think of uh, straight away. These are the, the five most expensive COVID deals. So E, a third of a billion uh, euros for buying vaccines. Uh, C, 800 million euros for vaccine implementation. D in between them, 336 million euros, is uh, making test equipment available to labs. B, at 835 million euros, is uh, performance of contracts with COVID test labs. But the runaway number one here, at just shy of 2 billion euros uh, is spending money on the National Resources Consortium. And the resources meant here are backup resources. And so in many cases, it seems to be, as you can see from the images that were just shown there as well from the press reports, a case of backup uh, equipment, uh, stores of masks and uh, uh, respirators or ventilators that in some cases didn't get to the hospitals and in some other cases appear not even to have made it as far as the national storage centres. Uh, there's very little animus in the Dutch parliament at the moment to pursue the Dutch minister responsible, Mr. De Jonge, who also 
also, by the way, has been the implementer of Scotland's named person policy in the Netherlands. We've reported on that in the past. Uh, but at least one of the rising dissident parties, the same party uh, led by Mr Baudet that David featured last week, asking other awkward questions, are starting to ask questions about that. And the MP in question is a former civil servant. So watch this space. Several continental countries have had scandals of this kind. In Germany, several national and, and regional politicians have been caught out investing in mask producing companies in China just before masks became obligatory. Uh, yes, so clearly uh, some, somebody's making lots of money here. Uh, yes, Alex, I was just going to say, uh, was, was it just to do with masks and physical equipment or was it this also to do with um, written material handed out? Because this seems a huge sum if it's simply to do with masks and ventilators, nearly two billion euros. I haven't seen any distinct reporting that uh, public campaigning materials and education is part of it. I will try to follow that up, but the Dutch are very sceptical of, of such stuff anyway. They're much quicker than the Brits are to cry foul and say, stop indoctrinating us. And they're much more the down-to-earth people that would rather see their taxpayer money go into physical assets. So I have a sneaking suspicion that most, if not all, of this five billion that's gone walkies, at least 40% of it's gone walkies uh, uh, in legal terms, uh, is actually on contracts for physical stuff, some of which doesn't appear ever to have been commissioned. Yeah, okay, thank you. Well, let's come on to the subject of demonstrations in London. And of course, over recent days, many people have been protesting the lockdowns, uh, particularly outside uh, Downing Street. Things came to a head uh, yesterday when the police uh, made every effort to clear out protesters. And a number of uh, video clips uh, came up on the internet uh, showing what was happening. What was interesting is watching the interaction overwhelmingly. Uh, the people protesting against lockdown were polite and well behaved. There was some shouting, there was some um, noise and uh, music, but overwhelmingly these were peaceful protests. Uh, but yes, they've been go going on for some days and the police decided they were going to take the effort to clear out the protesters. Uh, we watched a number of uh, clips of film showing the demonstrators and the police in action. But this one particularly caught my eye with one policeman acting in what can only be described as a very strange way. Let's have a look at this clip by Media Consumer 911. Can you give us a promise? Sorry. Uh, OK. Sorry, Brian's that one. Yeah. It's uh, it's uh, you come! Are you on class A's? You're chewing a lot. You look dissociated. Why are you chewing so much? Sir, why are you chewing so much? You look dissociated. You broke his arm. 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 Well, I'm going to say that that interaction in general was fairly typical. There were people shouting, there were people uh, challenging the police. Uh, the demonstrators were particularly um, concerned there because one gentleman had been held on the floor 
uh, he was being led away at the end of that clip. But it was the behavior of the bearded policeman who did indeed look as though he wasn't entirely with it. Mm. And so uh, the protester was saying, are you on drugs? Uh, but there was clearly a problem with that particular policeman. Uh, I wonder whether this was pure fear that the briefing in the base before they came out on the streets was that any member of the public who dared challenge them was a danger and possibly could kill them. Is this the level of fear that's been given to the policeman? But what was wrong with that particular officer? I don't know, but clearly something was. Well, if that was one report, let's come on to the uh, Daily Mail, which really got stuck in because a BBC reporter had come under the same pressure from those present. Uh, the BBC uh, reporter had been uh, challenged. So this is Mr. Watt. And uh, the Daily Mail carefully constructed its article in order to just give the one-sided argument that the very nasty, violent protesters uh, were there harassing and threatening and intimidating a senior BBC reporter. So this was the headline, and it's quite a long one, Police Probe, Officers in Action When BBC Reporter Was Chased and Branded a Traitor, Scum and a Liar While Covering Anti-Lockdown Demo as they quiz man in his 50s over the incident and launch hunt for other protesters. And of course, one of the key pictures they selected was of this particular gentleman. Now he's wearing uh, clothing, which uh, probably gives him an image of being a bit of a biker. And therefore the Daily Mail is able to get the idea across that these are rough, tough, aggressive people. But if you follow the video clip, there's no actual physical violence at all, but the Daily Mail really going for the story. So let's have a look at uh, Resistance GB uh, video clip, which shows that uh, shows the uh, BBC reporter, uh, Mr. Watt, being chased. <laughs>
Yep, so there we have it. Uh, Nick Watt, uh, BBC reporter, running back to the safety of Downing Street. In general, the crowd extremely well behaved, but certainly they wanted to challenge him. And in the beginning, very reasonable questions are being put to him. In the latter stages, one or two people getting a bit enthusiastic and in his face. But Alex, there was no real violence there. He wasn't punched. He wasn't hit. He wasn't uh, spat at, uh, something which a crowd out of control might have done. Uh, he runs back into Downing Street and now the police are in trouble for allowing him to walk amongst the crowd. It's um, interesting. And it's at the very same Downing Street security gate where uh, my fellow old rugby and Andrew Mitchell nearly lost his political career over the, uh, the incident of allegedly calling policemen plebs on that very gate. It's, uh, that itself is a kind of microcosm of how things are shifting. Uh, a previous generation, several previous generations, would know perfectly well that hardened senior people like Nicholas Watt, the political editor of BBC's Newsnight, no less, the agenda-setting uh, show to end all shows, would be perfectly inured to dealing with the public in an enthusiastic, and yes, I will say, in a traditionally British manner, which involves more than it does on the continent, uh, raising your voice. Uh, possibly having had a drink or two on both sides, the journalists and the crowd, although in this case, I think they're all sober. OK, the chap in the, the, the tracksuit, the blue tracksuit top, uh, touches Mr. Watt. I think even in the old days that was out. Uh, but a large chunk of this is the, um, the frayed sensibilities and uh, unrealistic expectations of today's commentariat, both the journalistic side and the political side of the house. They are, after all, the same blob and feed freely from one to the other. Uh, Mr. Uh, Watt's supporters or, or cheerleaders in politics, as you're about to cover, seem to think that he is literally untouchable, perhaps that he should go around with an invisible aura around him. Uh, Touch ye not this man, come ye not near him. Well, couldn't agree more. Let's uh, have a look at what the da Daily Mail put forward as the comments. Uh, pretty Patel is the first one. I'm afraid I'm going to call her not so pretty on this one. The anti-lockdown protesters are a mob and their actions are appalling. The video of Nick Watt being abused by a mob is appalling and distressing. This behaviour is never acceptable. So she's very, very precious. And then we've got Boris. Well, really, we haven't got Boris because he didn't speak. He got a spokesperson to speak for him. Uh, but their comment was, this footage is deeply disturbing. Journalists should never face that kind of behaviour. The right to protest may be fundamental in our democracy, but violence, threats and intimidation is never acceptable. So, but there was no violence, well, there were well, no threats and, well, intimidation. Well, that's more down to him than anybody else. I couldn't agree, Mike. So we just add, this is comment from UK Colin. The right to protest is fundamental in a democracy, but not when people think they can protest my lockdown and my BBC's COVID fear propaganda. So I don't think you're going to challenge uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, that's why he's so uh, worried about what's taken place. And then let's bring up Tim Davey, because the Daily Mail also quoted him. The safety of journalists is fundamental to any democracy. They must be able to report unhindered, free from abuse. There's absolutely no justification for any journalist to be treated in this way. Uh, we're going to say the reality is, Mr Davey, that you helped create this situation by using your five billion propaganda machine to ramp up fear, stress and anxiety because it was the BBC that was promoting all of that applied psychology used in the SAGE group, which knew it was going to have people inflamed 
uh, stressed, anxious, and ultimately angry. So Tim Davey helped pr promote that. And in addition, of course, he ignored hundreds of thousands of people peacefully protesting on the street. So I think we've got to bring Tim Davey's name onto screen and we've got to say it's his personal actions which are now rebounding on his own BBC journalists. So who's to blame? Well, Tim Davey partly to blame by his actions in how he has failed to report or he's misreported what's been happening with COVID. Back to the Daily Mail, of course, uh, they couldn't resist having a go at Piers Corbyn. Uh, but this was the picture. So we've got Piers here with a big banner saying, we demand public TV debate with all sides of science on vax dangers, especially for children. Mm. That seems a very reasonable request, but not for the Daily Mail, of course, because their uh, caption for this photo was ahead of the announcement, thousands of anti-lockdown protesters, including arch conspiracy theorist Piers Corbyn, the brother of former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, took to the streets in anger at the decision. So this is more spinning of what took place, but we fully support what uh, Piers is asking for. There should be a fully publicised uh, proper debate on the safety of vaccines and what vaccines are all about. But of course, the BBC isn't going to do that. and The government isn't. Uh, well, the, the Daily Mail article had to uh, get more in. So here was the picture of Michael Gove with Professor Graham Medley from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and a SAGE member. And he said that Britain could be faced with hundreds of daily COVID deaths despite the delay to the roadmap. Well, Gove was interviewed. Let's have a little look at this uh, video clip and see what uh, Gove had to say. Can you give us a promise that July the 19th will be the end of it? Yes. Well, that's absolutely <laughs> categoric. I thought we were being led by the data, not the dates. Yes, and the data shows that um, we should be in a position to have vaccinated so many people um, uh, by uh, that date in July uh, that we will be able to lift restrictions. Now, you, you know, none of us can predict the future with 100% certainty. There could be something bizarre and unprecedented that occurs. Uh, well, so that was a yes or not. <laughs> that was a pretty quick about face. So, um, yes, no, hmm. yes, no. So, what's the truth? Well, we're not going to get truth out of the government. Now, we'd just like to give a special mention to Resistance GB, the team that took the fit footage of the BBC reporter. They've been doing some really good work. They were kind enough to give us a statement, uh, which we'd like to read out very quickly. Um, from what we could see, this is uh, Resistance GB talking, uh, from what we could see and confer, police weren't worried about Nick Watt given that anti-lockdown events are in our significant experience of covering them almost entirely peaceful and as it transpired he was entirely unharmed. What concerns us more is the utter lies and hypocrisy from government who have systematically violently attacked independent journalists ourselves having been threatened and assaulted by police on Monday, and nearly all of our colleagues having been threatened or violently and unlawfully assaulted many previous times. Yet what we face completely pales in comparison to the false imprisonment and torture of Julian Assange, the most famous journalist in the world, currently held in Belmarsh prison away from his wife and family for telling the truth. 
Boris Johnson has stated that journalism is the lifeblood of our democracy, yet he and Priti Patel, who also made a statement, are some of the foremost people in the country responsible for violent attacks on journalists and the suppression of free press. Anybody can find footage of Julian Assange being dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy. What's happened since is far worse. That is what a journalist being abused, sorry, that is what a journalist being abused in the UK looks like. Since Monday, the mainstream media has repeatedly requested permission to use our footage uh, to use to frame a dishonest narrative. We told them all to get stuffed. We've, sorry, they've lied about numbers of protesters by a factor of a thousand. They've lied about protesters attacking police who've assaulted them. They've lied about the illegal and unconstitutional lockdowns that our ancestors did not fight through two world wars to see imposed. We've turned down thousands of pounds in commission out of principle. Instead, we've offered our footage for free to the UK column, Unity News Network and Russia Today for principal coverage. We've noted what's truly going on in our, cover in our country. Regardless, many mainstream media have chosen to steal our footage regardless and use it without permission. This only serves to underline the sheer arrogance of the mainstream that they'll simply take what they want, regardless of whether it belongs to them, in order to feed their narrative. If the mainstream told the truth and did honest journalism, then we wouldn't exist, nor would the growing scepticism of nearly everything they say. We're coming for their jobs and we'll just keep coming. Alex. I'm sincerely impressed by Will and Laura running uh, Resistance GB in that way. The irony of the situation is, of course, that Mr. Nicholas Watt only deigned to come over and give them the time of day, which he regretted after three seconds, because he thought they were fellow members of the bubble. He thought they were within the charmed circle and that he could draw an eye onto them. He thought they were GB News launching, at least in one sense, this week uh, under Andrew Neil. Uh, and it's been noted in our chat box already that Andrew Neil, the former BBC heavyweight, uh, has already come out swinging in defence of Nicholas Watt and regards himself as similarly outraged and infringed by this uh, this non-attack by the invisible mob. Uh, so that's that's an, an irony of the situation. As soon as he realised it was uh, what he would regard as plebs from the, the new media, he turned his back on them and said, oh, I'm only reporting. I'm, I'm not here for anything else. Deeply ironic. Also, the point you made just there, Brian, about uh, the nicking of coverage. This has happened to us as well. And I dare say to Unity News Network and RT, the others who were given the honourable mention by Will and Laura, in our case, at least one instance uh, I can bear in mind, I can recall, is that Chloe Hajimetheo, of course, of uh, the uh, BBC, uh, nicked some of our interview with Vanessa Beely in order to put together a, a hit piece, uh, a hatchet job against her. And Mike, in that case, you might want to talk about it. You challenged her and she came out with utterly spurious grounds uh, claiming fair use, which you know, ignored any sense of journalistic usage. Uh, well, yes, could very strongly make that argument, but uh, we see uh, rules for the mainstream uh, being, well, they, can, they view themselves with big legal teams and they don't need to worry about what they take from, from smaller organisations. Yeah. So we just finish off uh, Resistance GB because Will and Laura were kind enough to uh, let UK Column have some of the email exchanges with some of the bigger media companies. So let's look, have a look at what happened when Aaron Moy from BBC Westminster emailed them. Hi, I work for BBC Politics and we're interested in potentially using a still or a clip 
From this footage, are you able to grant us permission to use, please? Thanks, Aaron Moy, BBC Westminster. And he was given this reply. Hi, the BBC is funded through fear, violence and intimidation. You consistently lie about the criminal and unconstitutional lockdowns illegally imposed by the government. When hundreds of thousands of people marched on the streets for their freedoms a few weeks ago, you declined to cover it. If you wish to do journalism, then we suggest you do what we do. A, tell the truth and B, set up your own media organisation that people can either pay for or donate to. We suggest that you highlight the continued torture and false imprisonment of Julian Assange, the most famous journalist in the world, who's currently locked in Belmarsh. To clarify, you do not have permission to use our footage. And let's give you another one. Uh, this is um, from Jenny Hauser from Eurovision. Uh, hello, I'm contacting you from the European Broadcasting Union about the video of the BBC reporters being chased away at yesterday's protest. Could we get permission to use this video in news reports with a courtesy? Our terms are here. And the reply was, if you want to do journalism, then we suggest you make a product that people aren't forced to pay for by government and that they choose by their own free will to buy or donate to as we do. If you follow our work, maybe you'll learn how to do your jobs properly. You people fund yourselves off fear and intimidation. The people hate you and rightly so. No, you do not have permission to use our video. And the last one here, uh, this is from Luke Dolan. Um, this is from LBC. Good afternoon, I hope you're well. My name is Luke Dolan. I work for the Global Video Desk in London. Would it be okay for LBC to use this video in our website player apps? and social channels with full credit to you. Kind regards, Luke Dolan. Well, he got this reply. Afternoon, we and our colleagues have repeatedly been threatened and violently and unlawfully attacked by the Metropolitan Police over the past year, including yesterday, for doing our jobs as journalists. Your failure to mention this, focusing on the plight of privileged BBC liars framed through the narrative of criminal politicians in your article, is exactly why you do not have permission to use our footage. We know how it will be framed. And that's poor old James O'Brien. They put a PS in saying that he's a disgrace. So we're going to say, if you appreciate what this uh, team has been doing, uh, getting out there and uh, taking some really excellent video, perhaps you would be kind enough to support them on their channels and also via that PayPal link, because everything they're doing at the moment they are funding via their own pocket, so some help would be great. Okay, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then you can go over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to join us there. That would be very much appreciated, but also share our material on the various platforms if you could, please. Now, uh, of course, videos hosted by Rumble now for the UK column mainly. Uh, and thank you very much to Rumble for all their help. Uh, but some people saying that uh, they can't watch uh, the videos. Uh, not very many people, but some people saying this. Now, we seem to be getting to the bottom of what the problem is or what the problem might be. Um, and it looks very much like uh, some of the uh, internet service providers in the UK are in fact blocking access to Rumble videos. Um, and so we have been running some tests. Uh, and it seems that if you are using a VPN, a virtual private network, of some kind which bypasses uh, your internet service providers, uh, domain name servers in particular, then there's no problem watching the video. Uh, but if in fact you're using uh, your connection without a VPN, 
running, uh, then in some cases it seems to be impossible. So it looks like, and it's not confirmed yet, we're still investigating this, but it's beginning to look like um, the Great Firewall of China is moving to the UK and already we're seeing some uh, some censorship, which is sort of under the surface. Covert. It's not really, but it's absolutely covert. Uh, Alex, have you any thoughts? Only that viewers in Denmark, one of our neighboring countries, if you count maritime countries as neighbors, uh, can only now, uh, already now, only see us on two of those three platforms because Denmark has become the first, I suspect not the last European country, to ban access to BitChute at a country IP level. Okay, so perhaps that's on its way. Okay, uh, well, um, Twitter, of course, censoring if it doesn't like what you say. We got away with this one. Uh, we just couldn't resist the two images here. This is the red arrows in the sky. Now, remember, these are jets burning fuel, but also using smoke for the entertainment of the G7 group. Let's look at them in a bit more, uh, a bit of a bigger frame here. Uh, here they all are, no social distancing, swigging the alcohol, hugging each other and watching the airborne pollution. Uh, but compare that with the Daily Mail's comments in the article that we've just been talking about to do with the, the so-called uh, mobbing of the BBC reporter. In the article, the Daily Mail says at one point the move, they're talking about the delay to the uh, Freedom Day, means that current rules will essentially remain in place until Ju July the 19th with social distancing enforcing bars and restaurants and the edict to work from home where possible staying. So the great and the good, they're clearly breaching all of the laws. The Daily Mail's quite happy with that, but it's going to turn on anybody who demonstrates. And uh, with emails into the UK column, this was another interesting one. So uh, a lady has said to us that she's uh, looking at an advert for COVID marshals. So certainly if you're recruiting COVID marshals, Mike, it doesn't seem as though the lid is going to come off lockdown anytime soon. Uh, and this is Indeed, which is carrying the job advert, but they're only paying a measly 10 to uh, £11.21 an hour. So presumably some limitations on those people. Uh, yes. OK, let's uh, move on to this. Uh, this is uh, from the BBC this morning. Uh, or sorry, no, sorry, I've gone back a little bit of time. This is September 2020. The Tory MP Chloe, Chloe Smith rejects husband's COVID mental illness claim. Now, this her husband had make, made a statement saying that uh, he thought that COVID-19 would turn out to be the biggest mental illness ever uh, because he was effectively saying it was uh, fake. Uh, now, she had to set a step aside from that statement. Uh, but nonetheless, who is Chloe Smith? Well, of course, she's a member of parliament, but she is also uh, the minister for the constitution. And uh, she was speaking at policy exchange yesterday. Uh, all about the government's plans to defend democracy in the UK. So everybody should be very happy that the British government is defending democracy. So let's look at how they're doing that. But she began her speech by saying, for an elected politician, the second American president, John Adams, was strikingly pessimistic about democracy. Remember, it never lasts long, he once warned, but it soon wastes, exhausts and murders itself. Uh, and uh, he, he went, she goes on to say, for an elected politician, the uh, Sorry, there never was a democracy uh, yet that did not commit suicide, is what he went on to say. That's how she quotes him. And she said, uh, 
talking about uh, people that are running so-called uh, dictatorships around the world, really Russia and China is what she's talking about here. Those adversaries fa favor control, corruption and conformity, whereas she and her government fights for freedom, responsibility, enterprise and tolerance. So everybody should be feeling very good about that. Um, so uh, she went on to talk then about the new elections bill, about plans to introduce photo identification and polling stations, about the elections bill, which is going to work to protect everyone against political intimidation, that they're going to modernize existing counter-espionage laws to reflect the modern threat and legislative standards. Uh, these proposals, she said, will create new offenses, tools and powers to detect, deter and disrupt hostile activity targeting the UK. They're going to seek views on Official Secrets Act reforms, so they're going to shut down any whistleblowing. Uh, they're going to... Uh, push forward their groundbreaking online safety legislation. Uh, and the UK is doing this in two ways, she said. First, through cross-government counter-disinformation unit to lead the fight against online misinformation and disinformation. And secondly, through legislation. So all this legislation is coming through. She didn't mention the prime, crime and policing bill, which, of course, she should have. But all this legislation is all about defending democracy. So, of course, on uh, Monday evening, uh, we had uh, Boris Johnson's announcement about the uh, extension to lockdown uh, for another four weeks. Um, and, uh, well, that was a live stream that was pushed out, but there was no statement made to Parliament. Um, and the Speaker was pretty upset about this, Lin uh, uh, Lindsay Hoyle. Uh, he was pretty upset about this, and this is what he had to say. First of all, can I say I'm grateful to both gentlemen both gentlemen for giving notice of the point of order. I've repeatedly made it clear how important it is that announcements should be made in this chamber first. As you are both aware, the Secretary of State will be making a statement at 8.30 on COVID. That will give members of the House an opportunity to question him on the government's policy. However, it is not what I would have expected. A statement to the House before announcement to the press is not acceptable. The government determines when ministers make statements, but in doing so, they must show respect to this house. Can I just say, we weren't going to get a statement until I got involved with Downing Street. The fact is, this has been forced to actually get a statement today. It was going to be left to tomorrow, which would have been totally unacceptable. I was told no decisions have been taken. That's why I'm more shocked to know there is an embargoed list of what's going to happen to this country without this house knowing. I was told no decisions have been taken, that no decisions will be taken until the Cabinet meets. The fact is, I am being misled, this House is being misled, it is not acceptable, and I would welcome them coming here before they make the press statement, as the press have already got an embargo. And I'm sure now that the Whip is texting the Chief Whip to let him know exactly what's being said, because it's disappointing to all of us. I'm now suspending House. So wow. what basically happened was that Boris had scheduled a uh, live stream to make the announcement. A, a press release had gone out to the press, to, which was embargoed until that live stream had taken place. Parliament hadn't been given any kind of briefing. And so Lindsay Hoyle stepped in and forced Matt Hancock to go in and make a statement to Parliament. But Alex, this is an incredible situation. I mean, we've seen it building over, over a period of time here. And really, the, the John Adams quote at the very beginning of Chloe's speech is absolutely prescient here because we have... A parliament that thinks that it ought to be God. We have a government which is behaving like it is God. 
and neither of them is actually correct um, because both uh, both their attitudes um, are, are are way over the top. So um, you know, democracy in the UK has ceased to exist effectively because we have a government which is behaving like it is a dictatorship. Well, it is a dictatorship. Um, and Parliament doesn't know actually what its position is relevant to that dictatorship. So how do we move forward from this point? By the outlawing of political parties for which no common law country was ever set up and by uh, a hazard which the US founding fathers uh, and the equivalent statesmen of that era in Britain and Ireland were very keen to point out. Uh, that the returning of members to Parliament uh, by free and fair elections, as enunciated in the Bill of Rights 1688 and the Claim of Right in Scotland, is absolutely not negotiable. It's not up for grabs. And I recently heard even part, uh, uh, continental commentators, uh, Rainer Fulmich and his German associates, pointing out, uh, because some of them are forming another German party, which is the best they can hope to do in their system at present. You can't vote for independence there. They are starting to realise, even in the continental system that has been blind to this, that a party, by definition, is something that interposes, comes between the voter and his government. And the whole point of a representative in Parliament is that he is you in Parliament saying we will not have this. This is the key, the kernel of what we have been teasing out in a dissident's guide to the Constitution. Go to ukcolumn.org and from the top menu find under the topic topics menu uh, the Constitution button and we then go through that series. It would be remiss of me also not to point out that the final stage of laws that are passed when they get through these awful rounds of spin doctors that Mr Hoyle has got so uh, enraged about now, the final hurdle is that the sovereign embodying our sovereignty under law is meant to sign assent, a royal assent, and she hasn't done so thanks to uh, one of our viewers who's done research with the House of Lords about this. Uh, in fact, none of her predecessors have since 1854. Since the early Victorian era, a committee of lords, which now is merging with that spin doctor blob as far as we can see, uh, verbally claims that the, key, the Queen has assented. Royal signatures are not actually appended. So the, the, the tripartite system of government fell even at that age, which is about the same time that whipped parties came into the lead. So the long and the short of it is we must have independent candidates in Parliament. Otherwise, we just are on a hiding to nothing again. This will this this vicious cycle will repeat itself, as Mr. Adams predicted. Uh, yes, indeed. I'll just add one comment to that. Uh, uh, people are often asked who is running the show. Well, clearly it isn't Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson um, is in the position that he's in due to the support given to the uh, Conservative Party. So follow the money trail. Who was paid for the Conservative Party? Who was paid for Boris Johnson's leadership? It comes down to the to this money trail, and uh, this is the same for all of the all of the parties. Um, okay, Alex. Now uh, this is from the Crime Bodge website, uh, uh, YouTube channel. Sorry, and it's, uh, it was published at the end of May. But the title is uh, "Man Gets Five Years for th Having Three on." three lawful books and the wrong views. 
We can see something of the decay in the legal system here, uh, mirroring what you said about Parliament. Crime Bodge is a, uh, a YouTube channel well worth subscribing to, and two uh, of these cases have been covered in rapid succession by it, which is why I put them up now. They both involve a new generation of uh, Crown prosecutors, as they are in England and Wales. Uh, the Crown Office in Scotland is the equivalent that we've covered more of the nefarious business of, but the CPS in England and Wales is just as bad by this stage. Uh, they and a new generation of of judges who became Queen's Counsel in the post-Blair reforms. They, they had to jump through a, a hoop of quangos to get to tick boxes to get into to, to be a judge. Now, this new generation is reinterpreting some of the legislation just before the turn of the millennium, particularly those regarding malicious communications and misuse of computers. And they're starting at the fringes. If they think they can get away with plastering someone as a neo-Nazi, they're going to start using this legislation, which was uh, basically came through in the 80s and 90s in, in a fit of horror that technology was allowing people to become stalkers and, and cheerleaders for terrorists, which something must be done and unspecified. So a vague legislation went in. The second generation since then has got such empty minds or such repurposed minds, they are starting to use the provisions of this 20 to 30 year old legislation uh, in ways that we hadn't envisaged. But let's have a look at the relevant section uh, of law that's uh, at issue here. It's even from before 9-11. It's the Prevention of Terrorism Act 2000. If you've been through a British airport or port, you will know that this is displayed. Uh, a, a different section of this law is what's displayed, saying if you don't tell the police at this desk everything they want to know for hours, including intimate details, they will lock you up as a terrorist. And if you don't give them the password to your vices, devices, you'll be a convicted terrorist. Well, you might like to read uh, the whole of Article uh, Section 58. It's the very vagueness of it which is so concerning here. This, this has got a man sent to jail for five years now, as we're about to see, for owning three downloads, legal downloads, by the way. Uh, well, I'm not going to read it all, Alex, because we're, we are uh, uh, heading out of time. People can read that for themselves. But it does begin, a person commits an offence if he collects or makes a record of information of a kind likely to be useful to, to a person committing or preparing an act of terrorism. Uh, if he possesses a document or record containing information of that kind, or if the person views or otherwise accesses by means of, an internet, of the internet a document or record containing information of that kind, and so on. But... Uh, but this is typical of, of parliament of uh, legislative language that it it, it leaves many uh, diverse ways to to expand the scope. It's one of these clauses of recent legislation that reverses the burden of proof and doesn't have a reasonable defence uh, clause in it, which you know, for anyone even amateur involved in in the law will will know is is a is a no no. It's not how the common law. Uh, works. It's not even how the better civil law jurisdictions work these days. Uh, but let's look at the convicting uh, judge in this case, Peter Lodder QC, uh, a, a resident judge at Kingston upon Thames Crown Court. Uh, in sentencing the man involved, he said the following, uh, addressing Nicholas Brock, the defendant, in sentencing remarks, he said, it is clear from the material found on your computer and your hard drive that you are a right-wing extremist. Well, one of the things that that sentence indicates to us is that it is a jailable offence to be a right-wing extremist. I'm not sure when that went through Parliament or has it just gone through the BBC. And uh, he continued to say, uh, methinks the judge doth protest too much here, I do not sentence you for your political views, but the extremity of those views informs, which is posh language for dictates, the assessment of dangerousness. So a judge can't send a man to prison for having the wrong views, but he can send him to prison uh, for appearing dangerous. 
Now, Mr. Warner, who is the uh, legal advisor and commentator running the Crime Bodge channel, uh, has had this to say in the video which I put up on screen. He says, the most repulsive of all this is book burning by backdoor political censorship. But, and this is a departure from Ray Bradbury's for, uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, Mr. Warner says, rather than burn the book, they choose to burn the reader instead, the, they here being the new generation of Crown prosecutors. Section 58 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act 2000 does not require reasonable suspicion. Uh, even people who have a run-in with, uh, with traffic police will know that reasonable suspicion is a cornerstone of the common law uh, in police powers terms. They don't require reasonable suspicion that an article, so in this case a download, has a purpose connected to terrorist activity. It's only likely to be useful to bad people. Right? And he continues, Rob Warner continues, the burden of proof also falls upon the defendant here to show that they had a reasonable excuse for having this article, in this case download, in their possession. So this is the law turned on its head, but it's been the case for 21 years now, a generation nobody seems to have bothered to protest about it much. And Mr Warner concludes that Section 58 of this Act 2000 is so widely drawn, it enables the police, and they have started doing it now, that's the new development, to arrest anyone who purchases a particular book or download. So just as it's a kind of secondary matter to inform Parliament of how long we're going to be locked up, likewise it's a secondary matter to put before MPs a draft and say, would you mind awfully putting this into law so we can lock up the dissidents? Because that can all be short-circuited through the right kind of prosecutor and judge and cowed jury. Because, of course, this will have gone through a jury who will have sat there uh, like sheep, if we don't get into trouble for putting it that way, and will have been directed by the judge, as Brian, you've seen happen personally in courtrooms, uh, will have been directed, this is a bad man, you must convict him. Now, the other case which has been covered at the same time by Crime Bodge is the video that this got, that got this man jailed for 18 months. This is a man who, at the, at the time of the ostensible offence, was just 22 in Yorkshire, Louis Duxbury. Uh, there had been uh, a terrorist attack real or otherwise, or whatever you want to call it. He had said he was outraged by it in a video. And the reason the cassette is the is the thumbnail icon for that video is that these are, they still use the uh, cassettes of this purpose, the police interview tapes. And the, the thing that I think people ought to uh, uh, bear in mind when they go and listen to that commentary is that the, uh, the bogeyman that was put up in this case was the Muslims will be terribly offended. Now, right through the probation service and the prison service and whatnot, uh, Mr. Duxbury was repeating intimidated by British officials, white British officials, by being threatened with uh, being pummeled by Muslims or being put in front of Muslims and called a bad nasty man. And in one case described there by uh, Crime Bodge, he was put in a small room with an imam, I think one imam known to the prison and probation service, and uh, told, well, go and explain yourself to the imam. And Mr Duxbury said, hello, Mr Imam, let me civilly explain to you what I did in this video. The imam said, I see. Thank you for telling me. At which point the probation officer yelled, no, don't talk at the imam, listen to him, get yourself re-educated. And this continues through the probation service where of course he's not allowed to record. And he's told, recognize that your skin color is part of the problem, you have white privilege. So the problem is not just wretched law, it's that we're the second generation into having tolerated wretched law. And now a much worse caliber of mind controlled and repurposed people start applying it against political enemies, starting at the margins. And they've actually gone against Mr. Piers Corbyn as one of the first, uh, because he mentioned Holocaust in the wrong context. And this was turned around by the CPS and police uh, to something disgusting and malicious in communications. So, uh, you know, as John Adams said again, uh, it's quite quite prescient of the Minister for the Constitution to have said it. Uh, if you let these things slide, they will continue to slide. A democracy is not a stable state. 
Uh, that's absolutely right. And uh, But uh, Alex, I would say that there is uh, a, quite a body of evidence to suggest that uh, this concept of right-wing extremism is, a, is something which is being it's a construct which is being built by this, by the police and by the uh, security services and by the government at the moment. It's not really there, um, and not to any significant degree anyway. Uh, but it's being then used to justify the likes of the online safety bill mm. um, and uh, uh, and to shut down any kind of free speech. And then, of course, people are being labelled and categorised and so on. So, so uh, you know, you're you're saying they're starting at the fringes, but actually. Are they? Because you know the people involved in this, they may be, uh, they maybe weren't reading um, mainstream material, but it wasn't exactly, it wasn't massively right-wing extremist material either. Because as you said at the beginning, this was this was legal material that they had. Yes, and uh, another of the cases where malicious communications have been brought in recently, uh, again in Yorkshire, which seems to be suffering greatly from this, uh, the Crown Prosecution Service and the police colluded to um, troll uh, all those who had been leafleted uh, by uh, a party and a movement called Patriotic, Patriotic Alternative. Some of our viewers are sympathetic and others are not to them. We have to leave that aside and talk about the issues. The leafleting concern, which got a young man at least threatened with jail time, uh, was simply demographics. And this is, I think, quite comparable to how UK Column is now being hounded for uh, statistics. Uh, if it's the wrong kind of statistics, uh, and likewise with the downloads that uh, uh, the defendant in Kingston had and that's now gone down for five years for, uh, it's the wrong kind of legal material. The plebs are not meant to have this stuff. And uh, all this is being done uh, without any real provisions in primary legislation. It's being left, it's, it's MPs' fault, or it's ultimately our fault for voting for parties. But once we return those controlled MPs, uh, they vote through uh, uh, provisions repugnant to the common law, which allow a judge and a prosecutor to say, this is a really bad man, trust me, with no details forthcoming. Yes. Um, okay, well, look, uh, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to cover this before we go, um, because uh, this is the uh, Committee on Climate Change. Now, we're going back to 2019 here, uh, and this report is uh, called Reducing UK Emissions, the 2019 Progress Report to Parliament. Uh, and I wanted to highlight a particular section out of this uh, because they said that uh, the government should put people at the heart of policy design. Over half the emissions cuts uh, to reach net zero emissions require people to do things differently. And this was the key focus of this report. They were saying in, in July 2019 that unless people start to do things differently, the government was not going to meet its net zero targets. Uh, that was in the second half of 2019, six months later, as we've mentioned before, uh, people were forced to start doing things differently because of lockdown policy. Well, a year later, then they produced, uh, oh, I should just mention, of course, in that report, it was full of uh, some fantastic uh, projections uh, of UK climate hazards and so on. Uh, and uh, well, we'll see more of that in a second. Uh, a year later, uh, we have uh, another report, progress report to Parliament in June 2020, reducing UK emissions. It's the same report one year on. And they say in April 2020, we wrote to the Prime Minister and the First Ministers of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, setting out six principles for a resilient recovery from COVID-19, uh, using climate investments, uh, leading a shift towards positive long-term behaviours. And in both those papers then, behaviour was a key part of the narrative. Uh, and indeed, they had from Warwick University uh, a key behavioural scientist who I believe uh, the same Warwick University has been putting uh, behavioural 
uh, information into SAGE uh, and other groups. Uh, and then this, uh, here's an, an example recommendation, uh, this time for the Department of Transport. Uh, and uh, the recommendation was that uh, people should, or that the government should invest in walking and cycling infrastructure and strengthen other schemes to support active travel modes, invest in public transport and other measures to reduce car travel demand, e.g. car sharing, mobility as a service, improve infrastructure connectivity to lock in positive behaviours uh, that reduce travel demand, e.g. home working. And we have increasingly seen that over the last 12 months. Well, they've got a new report out uh, today. It's called Their Independent Assessment of Climate Risk. Um, and uh, let's just get a quote out of this. Climate change has arrived. The world is now experiencing the dangerous impacts of a rapidly heating climate. Now, I'm not sure which climate they're talking about. I suspect it's more the political climate than anything else. But anyway, they claim that the climate is rapidly heating. Uh, and further warming is inevitable, even uh, on its most ambitious pathways for the reduction of global greenhouse emissions. Um, and so uh, um, the, the focus of this report is risk. Um, uh, but it is, and all the reports, 100% based on computer models, exactly the same type of computer models that we've seen driving the COVID narrative over the last 14 months. And how did this uh, end up? Well, it resulted in a BBC report uh, entitled UK warned it's unprepared for climate chaos. And as you read down this, you find very much the same type of psychological operation on the issue of climate uh, to instill fear. Uh, in the population uh, that immediate action is required, um, as we've seen with COVID. And I'm going to just say once again, Brian, that there is without question in my mind uh, a link between the policy directions that are being imposed for climate change and COVID-19. We've seen yeah, exactly the same times of tactics being used uh, and uh, clearly the same strategy being used as well. Without any doubt, without any doubt. Uh, Alex. On that score, Laura Dodsworth, in his book, uh, in her book, A State of Fear, uh, records her surprise that when she was talking to one of the several SPIB members who deigned to speak to her, they made a mental segue from COVID-19 to, look, climate change is much the same. And she spends a paragraph saying, what on earth triggered that mental equivalence in the mind of the SPIB member? Hmm. Because I think that uh, equivalence there all the time. Yes. is the answer. OK, we better leave it there. I think we probably should. Um, what can we say? Um, really serious things unfolding now, but at least we can see it. if it takes the speaker to say that now the parliamentary system is effectively finished. We just have Boris Johnson giving edicts to the country and the police are enforcing those. We know what we're dealing with in the same way. If we can see the G7 people looking at the sky and those uh, amazing chemical trails from the red arrows, uh, obviously, one set of rules for the elite and another for us. Uh, what can we do? Keep speaking out, keep lifting the stones and exposing what's happening. And can we say more people uh, to be out on the streets uh, filming, recording, speaking, spreading the word? Um, GB uh, Resistance GB, one of those teams. We need many, many more people doing this right across the country. We'll leave it there. Yeah, we'll be back in a few minutes on the UK Column live stream with some extra. And otherwise, we'll see you on 1pm as usual on Friday. OK, thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye.